It's great to be here and worship with you today as we continue our new series, Our Wesleyan Distinctives. You know, I don't know about you, but I love history and I love kind of getting into the roots of our theological beliefs. And now many of you have rightly said over the years that I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to these things, and that's certainly true. Um, and you'll see it today on full display. Um, but whether our interest in these kind of things, whether our curiosity is nerdy or otherwise, I think one of the things that's really important about a series like this is it allows us to look back at where we came from. It helps us to see uh, from what root we, we branch out from. And if we're able to see that, if we're able to own that, we're able to tap into the same kinds of things that we saw going on in the days of John Wesley, the same kind of spiritual renewal that was taking place in those days. You know, our church is rooted in John Wesley's movement that swept across Europe and America in the uh, 17 and 1800s, which brought about spiritual renewal to many, many people. And so why exactly is John Wesley and the Methodist movement of the 17 and 1800s so very important for Christ Church in the 21st century? I think that's a big question we've got to look at this morning. And I'll give you the answer, uh, the answer in one word, and that's this, vitality. Vitality is the reason that this movement of the 17 and 1800s is so important for our church in the 21st century. Because see, the Methodist movement was a response to a time that was uh, where people were spiritually stagnant, where they weren't growing in their faith, where they weren't feeling close to the heart of God. And I think one of the interesting and defining truths we find in Scripture about God is the fact that the Spirit of God is always free to do a brand new thing. The Spirit moves in new ways and moves us in those new ways in order to grow in our faith uh, together in order to uh, take form in this world in a way that will be vitally spiritual, that will be spiritually vital, rather. And the people in Wesley's day, the, the problem that Wesley was seeing is that the people were kind of going through the, the motions. They were doing all the right things, all the things they, that were expected of them, but the thing was that those practices that they had that once might have represented a vital spirituality had emptied of their meaning. They lo no longer were doing anything for the people. And so something had to change. And this is kind of where we, where we come to because vitality is something that I've learned never leaves people behind. The way in which God's spirit moves brings people along in new directions, in new ways, while honoring what came before. You see, the people called Methodists were not interested in starting a new denomination. They weren't trying to start a brand new sect of Christianity, one of the many twists and turns of the Christian family that we have. They had two specific goals in mind, and we're going to go over both of those really quick, but the, the goals that they had in mind were things that they stuck unwaveringly to, and so we see this rooted in the growth of the Methodist movement. So the first of these things was to reform the nation and particularly the church. Now, this is important to, to, to remember because in John Wesley's day, he was seeing people coming to church, and it was almost as if they were checking 
a box off their list. It really didn't seem to have any bearing. Whatever they professed on Sunday had little bearing on what they were doing Monday through Saturday. And so he was seeing that people were truly not taking their faith at heart. And there were others in the church who, who really were hungering, who were hungry for something that was of substance, something that was real, but they weren't getting it from the institutional church. And so they were turning to avenues increasingly outside of that church. So that's why John Wesley started his societies. Now, you can think of societies in this way. They're kind of like small groups or faith groups here at Christ Church. They are a small group of people who are focused on watching over one another in love, helping each other grow in their faith in practical ways. And these people then, John Wesley would seed throughout the Anglican church in hopes that the, the reawakened and renewed faith of these people would bring about renewed spiritual life in the institution. And so that is what he would do, and yet some of his opponents in the church saw this as kind of a threat to their idea of Christian fellowship. Some people, some church leaders said, you can't take people outside of these communities. You know, that, that's a threat to the way in which Christian fellowship should be done. And John Wesley would always respond and say, actually, wherever my societies are operating, Christian fellowship is being revived in places where it had previously died. And so John Wesley was saying that, uh, that in the institution, the old Anglican church, true Christian fellowship was dead or dying, and that his societies were what was bringing that back to life. Now, the second goal of Methodism was to spread scriptural holiness over the land, spreading scriptural holiness. So what does that mean? What is scriptural holiness? Well, holiness is being set apart by God for a purpose. In this case, to reflect the love of Jesus in the world, to love others as Christ loves us, to take on the ministry and actions of Christ as the church. But it isn't just mere imitation. You know, imitation can be artificial. What this is all about is about the Holy Spirit of God invading our lives and changing our character organically. It's a, it's a process that isn't something that we, that we do for ourselves. It's a process that God does in us if we're willing to get out of the way, if we're allowing God's spirit to take control of the direction that our lives go in. And this was what the early Methodists were about. They were, uh, more than anything, were passionate about the things Jesus was passionate about. And that's what made this, the faith and the spiritual movement of the Methodists so vital in the world. In fact, get these statistics. In 1776, the Methodist movement uh, was about 2.5% of the religious population in America. And by 1850, the Methodists had grown from 2.5% to 34% of the religious population. In less than a century, they became the top religious population in the country over, the, and the, the next closest one was 14% below them. And so they grew tremendously in less than a century. And this wasn't a mere coincidence. You know, there was something that drew people in, something that was compelling, something that the people were missing in the old Anglican church experience. 
You see, the Methodists took God and their mission to become like Jesus very, very seriously. And we see that reflected in these statistics. But here's a question that we need to consider. What happens when or if we lose the vitality that John Wesley and the early Methodists demonstrated? Well, this is what happens. We take on the form of faith without the power. So we take on the form without the power. And, and let, me, uh, let me explain this with a quote from John Wesley. This is something that he wrote in 1786 towards the end of his life when he was reflecting back on the impact of the Methodist movement across the, across the nation. And John Wesley said this, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case, unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. Let me give you an example of somebody who had the form and not the power of religion. If you were here last week or are online last week, uh, Pastor John talked about John Wesley's own conversion experience. And that conversion happened, uh, well, it happened in stages, but the story starts with John Wesley on a boat back to England in the middle of the ocean. And there's a storm that kicks up, and John Wesley becomes very afraid, uh, afraid for himself, and he starts to doubt maybe the integrity of his own faith because he's observing these other Christians on board with him, the Moravian Christians, and he's seeing that they are calm, they're peaceful, that they're singing praises to God in the midst of this storm. And he's saying, why am I not like that? Is my faith really shallow? Is my faith not the same level as these Moravian Christians? Is my faith even real? So this was the crisis that he was, that he was going through and then Pastor John taught us about the Aldersgate experience. This was when he quite unwillingly, in his own words, went to a Bible study at Aldersgate uh, Street one night. And at Aldersgate, uh, he reads the preface that Martin Luther wrote for the book of Romans in the Bible. And he, something clicked, something clicked in him. And all of a sudden, he felt he could he felt that he did have assurance that his sins were forgiven, that he could trust in God for his salvation. And later on, John Wesley reflected on this earlier period of his faith in life, and he realized that I was a Christian with the form of religion, but without the power. And according to John Wesley, this is a cool quote. Uh, I didn't have it up on the screen, but I'll just share it with you here. He says, true religion is our participation of the divine nature the life of God in the soul of man. I mean, that's deep stuff. Listen to that again. True religion or true faith is a participation of the divine nature, the life of God in the soul of man. Um, man, of course, we would say these days humanity, uh, meaning both men and women. Now, the form of religion, here's another way to think about form and power. The form of religion is our outward worship, our fellowship together, our acts of service, both in the church and outside of the church. And the power of religion is the substance that the form represents and that the form helps to facilitate. So you can think of the form of religion as a conduit through which the power flows. 
The form of religion is the conduit through which the power flows. It's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who works within each and every one of us, making us capable of following the command of Christ to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And those who have a genuine faith exhibit this kind of vitality, this kind of power that we're talking about. For instance, you heard last week how John Wesley and the Methodists uh, they used their vital spirituality to start Sunday school, which was for child workers so that they would be broken from the, the cycle of poverty that would be upon them if they didn't have an education. And likewise, one thing that I want to tell you this week is that both John and his brother Charles Wesley uh, felt very strongly about preaching to people who were in prison. They wanted to reach out to those even who were on their way to the gallows, who were condemned. In fact, we have a, I found a picture as I was preparing this message this week, and if you see here in the middle, there's a, a person with their finger kind of up in the air like this. That's actually an artistic rendering of uh, John Wesley, who's preaching to a prisoner uh, who's on their way to the, to the gallows, which you can see over there. And you can see kind of the crowd in the foreground, kind of a glimpse of, of life as it, it was uh, in the 18th century. Now, I show you that to say that John Wesley and the Methodists were very, very, very serious about making sure that everybody had an opportunity not just to hear the gospel, but if it was possible for them to respond to, to the gospel in concrete ways in our world, both personally and socially. Now, last week, Pastor John taught us that a genuine faith, that a genuine faith that saves is not indifferent but involved. That a genuine faith that saves isn't independent but a partnership. That a genuine faith that saves isn't invisible but on display. And that a genuine faith that saves isn't merely intellectual but from the heart. Now if I were to gather all of those statements up into one phrase, I would say it's something like this. Grace enables faith and faith produces works. Grace enables faith, and faith produces works. Now, this is important for us to consider because many in the 21st century believe that the Western church has, in some sense and shape and form, lost its way, that the, that the Western church has the form of religion but has forfeited the power that comes from having a personal relationship with God that transforms us. Now, that said, I've been in the church long enough to know that we as Methodists are far from existing only as a dead sect. But I think it is important that we, that we look at this crisis that many people are talking about and, and be able to talk about ways we can counter and overcome it by partnering up with God in ways that unlocks the potential of our faith. So clearly, from what we learned last week, the interplay of faith and works is important to our lives in Jesus. But there's something else that's very important to our, our faith as well. And that's this, that our faith is both personal and social. It's both personal and social. And so that leads to our main question this morning. How is it, or why is it important for our faith to be both personal and social? And so let's start this off by looking at some of the words that John Wesley wrote about this very subject. John Wesley wrote, the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth 
and height of Christian perfection. You know, what Wesley's saying here is nothing new if you heard the message last week. Grace enables faith, and faith produces works in each and every one of us that are done in love. But the thing I love about what John Wesley says here is that faith produces these works and that, that the love that is produced by faith is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. And what he means by Christian perfection is this idea that we progressively, as people, individually and as a church, become more and more like Jesus Christ in our character. We become more like Jesus. And it's not something that we can do in a vacuum. It's something that we do together. And I say that knowing full well that some of you have been hurt in the church before. And the reality is that wherever people are, sin will happen that mistakes will be made, and that misunderstandings will abound. But the truth of the matter is that when that God works most readily through us when we are in community with others, because God works through the people around us, and God uses each of us as channels of God's grace. So we talked a lot about John Wesley and what he had to say about this subject, but I think it's important that we go to Scripture and that we see what Jesus says on this subject. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at two different characters this morning. And let's get them up on the screen. Two different characters. There they are. So we have the sheep and the goat. So think of these two times billions. You know, billions of sheep, billions of goats. And the story comes from Matthew 25. Now, this isn't exactly a parable. It's not exactly a story necessarily. What this is, it's not even really literally about sheep and goats. What, it, what it's about is it's a metaphorical description of the judgment when Jesus returns at the end of time and divides the nations and sits on his throne. So what, what Jesus says happens is he will gather the peoples before him and separate them into two groups. Uh, the group on his right will be the sheep, and the group on his left will be the goats. And so what he'll do is he'll turn to the sheep, and he'll say to them, in in inherit the kingdom, you faithful ones, you who are blessed. And he says for them to inherit the kingdom because what they did was they responded to Jesus when they saw him in need. They responded in love to Jesus' need. But the sheep will say to Jesus, well, when did we ever see you naked or thirsty or hungry or sick or in prison? When did we see you in these places? And Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you did it for me. And then he'll turn to the goats on his left and he'll say, go away from me. Because when you saw me in need, you didn't, you didn't do anything. You didn't, you didn't help me. You didn't respond. And the goats will object, and they'll say, well, Jesus, when did, we, when did we see you hungry or naked or ill or in prison? And Jesus says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. And so Jesus invites the sheep on his right to inherit eternal life, and the goats on his left are separated from God forever. Now, this is kind of a, this is one of those stories where um, we have to be careful 
uh, we have to be careful how we interpret it because it's very easy to read something like this in isolation. Because if we read it in isolation, what it seems to suggest is that our salvation is based on works rather than grace. It seems to suggest that the sheep earns their salvation while the goats did not earn their salvation. And that's why it's important to put a single teaching or illustration of Jesus in conversation with all of his other teachings and with whatever else we learn in Scripture. Never forget, God's grace enables genuine faith, and genuine faith cannot help but produce works. You see, the sheep were commended for what they did, for the way in which they responded in love to the people around them, because it reflected a genuine faith that was already present in their lives. Now, despite everything Jesus had done for them, the goats didn't respond. They failed to embrace the grace of God that was a free gift to them. They had no desire to change, and they were completely unresponsive to the needs around them. You see, the key to this story, understanding this, is intentionality. The sheep allow God to cultivate genuine faith in their own lives so that they became more like Jesus in character. The goats held God at arm's length, perhaps assenting intellectually to the idea of Christianity uh, as perhaps a type of spiritual insurance in case this whole thing about heaven and hell turned out to be real after all. But remember that grace enables faith but it's our responsibility to embrace that newfound faith that God has planted within us so that God can produce works through us. One other thing that Pastor John pointed out, um, this week we were having a conversation in his office about this message this weekend, and he said, you know, you ought to, you ought to talk about those who are incapable of doing good works. What happens to them? So take, for instance, somebody who is shut in at home and has a physical condition. You know, what, what does happen to them? Uh, and I think, again, the key is remembering that it's all about intentionality because God knows our hearts. God knows that if we are willing but unable to, to produce good works for him, that God is still going to be near to us. And in fact, not all works are physical in nature. You know, we can be physically immobile, and yet our spirits can soar in prayer. And so there are many ways that we can work and act in this world in faithful ways, ways that we can reflect a genuine faith, because grace enables faith, and faith produces works. Now, with all that said, there's a few things specifically that we can learn from the story of the sheep and the goats this morning. And the first thing that we learn is that concealing true faith is impossible. Concealing true faith is impossible and contrary to God's intention for the church. Check out what the sheep say to Jesus when they learn what they did for him. In verses 37 through 39, the sheep say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? What's most striking to me about this is the genuine surprise and humility of the sheep. They never once considered that how they served others was blessing Jesus in a personal way. You know, Jesus often talked about how the church is to be a bright light in the darkness or a city on a hill. Now, you can't hide a city that's on a hill. And the only way to hide a flame on a candle is to put something over it, which is effectively to snuff out, 
excuse me, is effectively to snuff out that candle. And we know that God intends for all people to draw near to him through Jesus. And where is Jesus? Visible everywhere faithful Christian disciples are gathered in spirit and truth. Those are the places where the naked are being clothed, where the, where the hungry are being fed, where the thirsty are getting a drink of water, where those who are sick and those who are in prison are being visited. Those are the places where the grace of God becomes more than just a nice theological concept, but becomes a concrete reality that we can rest our lives on. So here's the second thing that we learn from the sheep and the goats. Jesus so identifies with us that loving others reveals his presence to everyone in a tangible way. And so let's see what Jesus replies to the surprise of the sheep. In verse 40, he says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. That's huge because what that means is that Jesus is always near to us, that Jesus is always present. And we already know that the Father's love was extravagant enough that God the Son took on flesh, lived a human life with all that entails so that we could be freed from the power of sin and death. But Jesus remains with us in an even more meaningful and powerful way today through the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to live within each of us. You see, when the sheep give of their time, their talent, and their treasure, they came to see Jesus in the faces of those that they served. And the ones that they served came to see Jesus in the faces of the ones who came to meet their needs. You see, they came to see Jesus in one another. And that's God's goal for us. You see, Jesus is the perfect representation of what God always intended for humanity. Jesus is what humanity was always meant to be. And God is at work restoring our true nature. Even in this moment, even as we're speaking, God is working to restore our true nature. And the only way to embrace that nature is to identify with the one who identifies with us. The only way to embrace that nature is to reveal Jesus, even as Jesus is being revealed to us. Here's the third thing that we learn from the story of the sheep and the goats. To make your faith solitary is to destroy it entirely. To make your faith solitary is to destroy it entirely. Now, I, I've got to admit, that's not my phrase. That's John Wesley's phrase. I decided he said it the best, so I'm just going to steal it from him. Uh, but let's see what he had to say or what Jesus had to say to the goats. In verse 45, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. You know, it's all, again, about intentionality. There's a difference between unable and refusing. There's a big difference there. And talk is one thing, but are we willing to back up our faith with actions? Do we have the form and the power of religion? Do we earnestly seek to become more like Jesus in character? Is that what our goal is for our faith? Because... Listen to this, Satan would like nothing more than for us to be inactive Christians because an inactive Christian is one who has the, the form of religion or faith but without the power. An inactive Christian is one who makes their faith entirely a private, solitary thing. 
And so that doesn't threaten our enemy. What threatens our enemy is a Christian disciple who is fully sold out believer in Jesus Christ, who is earnestly repenting of their sin and doing good in the world, not to earn anything, but in order to please God, in order to make a difference in the lives of the people whom God died and rose again in grace to love. Now, one word I want to say before I go on is if you're not sure, if, if you're reading this story and you're kind of like vibrating a little bit or just kind of nervous in general about this, if you're not sure whether you are a sheep or a goat, what category you fall in, I want to encourage you because if, if you have some kind of worry about that, if you are anxious about that, I think that shows that your heart is in the right place because I think, God, again, God knows our hearts. It's all about intentionality. If you seek to grow in your faith, if you seek to become more like Christ, God will remain near to you. God will be near to you. And God will ensure that it happens through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. I think the fact that you want to, that you yearn, you want to grow more into your faith is encouraging because what that means is that God will honor that. Now, one really neat story I discovered as I was preparing for this message that ties into the Matthew 25 sheep and goat story is about a man named Martin, Martin of Tours. And Martin of Tours was a Roman soldier and a Christian disciple who lived in the fourth century. So hundreds of years after Jesus died and rose from the grave, we have this guy named Martin. And one day, Martin is traveling through the countryside, and he arrives at a city. I can't remember what city it was, but he arrives at a city, and there at the gates is a beggar who is freezing because it's wintertime. And Martin wants to give this beggar some money, something to support him, but Martin doesn't have any money. So what he does is he says, I'm going to give what I can. And so Martin proceeds to take off his Roman cloak, take his sword, and proceeds to cut that cloak in half. He gives half of the cloak to the beggar and keeps the other half for himself. Now, later that night, Martin is dreaming, and he has a dream that he's in heavenly places. And he has this vision of Jesus surrounded by the angels, surrounded by the host of heaven. And Jesus is wearing half of a tattered Roman cloak. And so one of the angels leans over to Jesus and says, why are you wearing that battered, old, dirty cloak? And Jesus looks up directly at Martin, and he says, because my servant Martin gave it to me. And so maybe all, all that you have is a tattered old cloak to give. And yet, that was enough for Jesus. It showed Jesus that Martin's love for him was real because he loved the people that Jesus died to save. He loved the people for whom Jesus is giving new life each and every day. You may not know what you have to offer. You may not know what that looks like, but I can tell you one thing. You've got more than you could ever know. Ask God to inspire you in those moments of need to meet that need, and you will be able to give something that for that beggar, you know, Martin of Tours may have gotten a tap on his shoulder in heaven someday, and that beggar might have been standing right behind him saying, you know, that cloak that you gave me, it showed me that this whole thing about God was real. It showed me that my faith, that your faith matters, 
And I took on that same faith myself, and that's why I'm here today. It's those small gestures that don't seem to matter in the, in the long run that matter the most. And so that's something we've got to keep in mind. So as we start to wrap this up, we've got to ask one last question. What does a personal and social faith look like practically? Now, John Wesley has an answer for this, and of course, grace enables faith and faith produces works, but those works take two forms in our world. One of those forms is called works of piety, and the other is called works of mercy. Now, although I didn't, um, I didn't use that terminology, I preached about uh, the works of piety, actually, um, back in our I Didn't Tell, uh, If I Could Tell You One Thing series uh, over the summer. And I, I called them the means of grace. Now, what you're seeing up here is works of piety, works of mercy, and the personal and social aspect of both. And I'll explain all this in just a moment. But the works of piety that you see down here, that is prayer, searching the scriptures, taking Holy Communion. Uh, it's called fasting and Christian gatherings, which we would call faith groups or small groups. Those there are the works of piety. Now, works of piety have both personal and social dimensions. They have personal and social dimensions. On the personal end are our acts of devotion. These acts of devotion are our fasting. It's, it's our private prayer. It's searching the scriptures. On, on the social end, our works of piety are acts of worship. And the acts of worship are gathering together in Christian community, uh, taking holy communion together, our public prayer. These are some examples of the personal and social ends of the spectrum for works of piety. Now, works of mercy up top, these are also considered means of grace. They typically tend to be a little bit more social in nature, but they also have a personal and a social aspect to them as well. Now, acts of compassion on the personal end have to do with feeding somebody who's hungry or giving somebody who's thirsty a glass of water or clothing somebody who's naked. Those are acts of compassion. On the other end, the social end of the spectrum for acts of justice, these would be um, a collective community effort, for instance, to, conf uh, to combat injustice in our world, um, to uh, educate children to break the cycle of poverty, uh, and peacemaking efforts uh, throughout uh, the world wherever it's needed. Uh, Rise Against Hunger, um, which is something that we've done every year for the last three years, would be an example of a work of mercy that is more on the social end of the spectrum. What you're looking at here is the picture of a well-balanced Christian life. That's what a well-balanced Christian disciple looks like. But I want, I want you to realize that not all of these things happen at once. We don't do all of these things at once. There are different seasons, um, and God leads us into each of those forms, those means of grace in different ways. And so we have to be, we have to be, uh, we have to be ready for what direction God might move us in next. But if you've received the grace of God in your heart, then you have a genuine faith and that genuine faith, of course, produces works. And this right here can be a guide for how you intentionally live out the gospel life in our world. So as we, uh, as we wrap up, I want to go back to the beginning and just remind us that the stakes that, that we're facing, the thing that we've got to keep in mind, the constant danger that we face, is that we would have the form of our faith and not the power. The form and not the power. 
Because somewhere along the way, the Western church has really struggled with getting wrapped up in the form and has forfeited much of the power that is in our faith. And it's no mystery why this happened, because taking up the power means change. Taking up the power means discomfort. Taking up the power means that God gets to call the shots of what direction our life is going to turn out to be. Taking up the power means dying to ourselves. And let's face it, none of us are in any kind of a hurry to die. But the truth of the matter is this, and this is the gospel truth, that it's only in dying to ourselves that we can live for Jesus Christ. If we try to cling to our comfortable lives, we'll find ourselves empty. We'll find ourselves devoid of that spiritual presence that we deep down crave. We want that experience of God, and yet we can't do that and cling to the way that we've always lived our lives at the same time. You know, one of the other dangers is we may even believe that we've been made perfect in love and have no need but to sit back and wait for heaven. But that's not what God intends for us. That's not what God intends for you. So if you want to follow Christ, get off the fence, get in the game, and take back your life from the forces that are trying to keep you from the life that you were always meant to live. The means of grace that you saw, the works of piety, the works of mercy, those are available to you. And you're the only one who's stopping yourself from embracing them. My challenge for each and every one of you is to adopt one work of mercy and one work of piety over the next week. You've got the list in your, uh, in your notes. Take a look at that. See what work of mercy, what work of piety you can adopt over the next coming week. The reason I ask that is because whatever vitality you see here in the life of Christ Church right now will pale in comparison to what God will do through us next if each of us are active Christian disciples, if we are each active in our faith and putting that faith into action, both personally and socially. So one of the things that I would say to that is we, it'll take all of us in order to see this happen. But here's the thing, it may seem hard, it may seem impossible, but our God is a God who specializes in the impossible. Our God is the God who raises the dead to life. Those are the stakes. Those are the things we have to remember. Because when, where there are willing hearts, the Lord is at work. Amen? Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for your love and grace in Jesus Christ, which never fails and never ends. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, please help us to make those more than just words. Help us, Lord, to passionately live for you, to be your people in your world, to grow in our faith, both socially and personally, so that our faith will have an impact on the world around us. We know, Lord, that there are many people in this world that have yet to hear your good news. There are many people around this world who may have heard your good news and may have embraced you or thought they embraced you and are just feeling empty right now. Lord, I pray that you would draw them near, that you would use our community in ways that we could never possibly imagine as we each intentionally grow in the means of grace, in works of piety and works of mercy that we would reflect your love in this world, which is inevitable because when you plant genuine faith in our hearts, that faith cannot help but to produce works. 
So we thank you for that good gift, Lord. Help us to more meaningfully and intentionally grow in our faith with you so that that faith could bear works in this world. And so we thank you, Lord, for all you've done and for all you're about to do and for everything that you are. And we pray these things with gratitude and great expectation. In Jesus' holy name, amen.